0: cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. This is the Science Podcast for July 15th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Every week, we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. To start us off, we have staff news writer, Daniel Clary. He's back to talk about the first full-color images from the James Webb Space Telescope. This is something that a lot of people have been looking forward to for a long time. After that, researcher Jing Fen is here. We discuss his science translational medicine paper on what's behind the vicious itch-scratch cycle. Why does scratching sometimes trigger more itchy feelings? I'm sorry about how itchy you might get during that interview. And in a sponsored segment, director of custom publishing, Sean Sanders, talks with immunologist Paul Bastard about his work on the association between autoantibodies and COVID-19 susceptibility, for which he was recently awarded the Michelson Philanthropies and Science Prize for Immunology. Okay, Dan, (laughs) welcome back. Thanks. So we were talking about the Webb Telescope last, I think, November 2020. 21. A lot has happened since then. The launch happened.
1: On Christmas Day.
0: And that went pretty well.
1: It did, actually, very well. So much so that it was sent on a near-perfect trajectory, and all the fuel that they had set aside for making course corrections, uh, most of it wasn't used. So they've got extra fuel in the spacecraft, which they can use to keep it on position. So they think it's going to last longer than originally
0: forecast. Right. So it was five years for sure, 10 years likely. And now we're, what, surpassing 10 years?
1: Surpassing 20 is what they think.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. But what we're really marking today is the release of the first images from the Webb Telescope. That happened yesterday We're recording the day after. It's been 24 hours of people professing that their minds are blown. Are you, <laughs> were you, were these what you were expecting to see from the James Webb Space Telescope?
1: Yes. I mean, they're fantastic images. I suppose they look similar to what we've grown used to from Hubble. But when you look at them side by side with the same object that Hubble snapped, they look very different, you know, sharper because it's a bigger telescope. So they really got fantastic detail, but also the the colors and the texture of it are different because it's looking at it at a different wavelength. Webb is a an infrared telescope. So it's seeing everything through infrared eyes, which we can't normally do with our own eyes. So all of the infrared colors have to be translated into visible colors for us to be able to see them.
0: Right. So they're not photographs per se. When we look at these images, they're kind of interpreted because, again, we can't see in the infrared.
1: Yes, they're sort of false color photographs where they've been recolored so that they uh, make sense to us.
0: They also pick up stuff that Hubble could never see because Hubble didn't see this far into the infrared. So particularly older stuff is likely to be more visible for Webb. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's right. Things that are very distant, their light has had to travel a long way to get to us. And during that time, the universe has expanded and that stretches the photons themselves. So they become shifted towards the red end of the spectrum. Web is deliberately looking in the infrared to see things that are very distant because the majority of the light they produced back in the early universe has been shifted into the infrared. And so you need an infra- infrared telescope to be able to see it properly.
0: And one of the images that came out yesterday has just exactly that going on. It's looking very far back. This guy, Is it called SMACS?
1: SMACS 0723 I think it's called so that's the name of a cluster of galaxies which is in the middle of the image now that isn't so far away i think it's uh, 4.6 billion years old but what it's doing is acting as a gravitational lens so its gravitational field is bending the light of things that are behind it so that they become enlarged and brightened some of them looked really distorted and warped out of shape. So they look a bit weird. But because of that gravitational lensing, we're able to see things that are much further and smaller than we would uh, normally.
0: 13.1 billion years ago, some of those gravitationally lensed stars that we're seeing. How does that compare with some of the oldest shots that we've seen from Hubble?
1: Well, Hubble has seen things that are more distant than that, but it takes weeks and weeks to get a deep-field image. So it will stare at the same patch of sky for many, many days, whereas Webb is able to take an image like that one of uh, Smax in a few hours. Because it's so much bigger a telescope, it's gathering more light and is able to do the same that Hubble could do in a much shorter time. So when they do eventually do long-duration images with Webb... They'll probably see things that are only a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. So this is at the time when the very first stars and galaxies were starting to assemble themselves. And scientists are so eager to see that process going on.
0: These images that we're talking about, there's five, NASA released them in a press conference. These are only a subset of what's been captured since web was turned on and started collecting data. How do they choose which ones to to feed to the crowd?
1: It was determined by a lot of things. They wanted things that were going to look amazing, so uh, they did quite well on that. They also wanted to demonstrate the sort of things that the telescope can do. So some of them are images, some of them are spectra or have spectra included. That's where you look at a particular thing and you take its light and you break it down into its constituent wavelengths. So you can see what uh, wavelengths it's emitting strongly in or other wavelengths that might be absorbed by something. And that tells you a lot about what a particular object is made of or what it's doing.
0: A good example of that is when a star's light passes through an atmosphere of an exoplanet, you can kind of see the spectra there and tells you something about the atmosphere of that exoplanet.
1: Yeah, that's right. They gave an example of that yesterday. So they had a spectrum of a uh, an exoplanet which was called WASP-96b. And this is a giant gas planet that is orbiting a, a small star and on its orbit regularly passes in front. So we can see the starlight from its star coming through the atmosphere and some of that light at particular wavelengths gets absorbed. So by looking at the spectrum, you could see which frequencies are absorbed, and that's characteristic of different gases in the atmosphere. They were able to spot water pretty easily in that spectrum, but it's just a taste of what's to come. With more time to analyze the data, to remove background and stuff and longer observations, they'll be able to see other things in that atmosphere and maybe carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, methane that might suggest whether a planet might be habitable. They don't think Webb will be able to detect life to see a definitive signature, but it will certainly be able to tell us what planets could possibly be habitable.
0: These images are really just a taste. Starting today, scientists are starting to get data that they can analyze. So we're going to start to see papers and stories and just more and more about the universe in the coming weeks.
1: Absolutely. There are literally hundreds of teams of scientists, all poised, ready to counsel the data as soon as it comes out. So NASA went through a long process of calling for proposals and scientists suggested things they wanted to study and drew up a schedule of observations. And they're just Since the 21st of June, in fact, they started, they've been just doing those observations one after another. And so some of those groups are already receiving their data. Others sometimes might have to wait weeks or months till it's their turn. But I think there will be a flood of results coming out very, very soon, you know, because people are very prepped and ready because they've had to wait so long for this telescope.
0: So we talked about a few types of these images, ones that look far into the past, some data from an exoplanet. We also see these beautiful images, like your background here on the Zoom, that is uh, uh, the Carina Nebula.
1: Yes, that's right. So this is a, a cloud of gas and dust. It's not too far from Earth, a few thousand light years away. So it's in the Milky Way, but it's a place where where all of that material is condensing into new stars, denser parts of it. The gravity will just pull it together and slowly over millions of years, those clumps will form into stars and Some of the material will form a disk around those stars, and that's where planets will form. So we're seeing the beginning of that process in this gas cloud. The first stars being formed, and they're starting to shine brightly. And then some of that stellar wind that they create is buffeting this cloud of gas. So it's a very sort of dynamic place. There's a lot going on.
0: We shouldn't skip uh, Stefan's quintet. This is a different way to
1: make stars so this is a little collection of galaxies that are gravitationally interacting and you can see the beginnings of a couple of them starting to merge so they're getting so close that their outer suburbs are brushing against each other and that's heating heating up the gas and making it glow very hot so it's bright in the image, but also you get star formation that way. So sometimes when you get this turmoil created by two galaxies rubbing up against each other, that causes some of the gas and dust to start clumping, as described previously in the Carina Nebula, and create new stars. So often when you get galaxies merging together. They have a burst of uh, new star formation and they become very bright during that process.
0: I think my favorite image that I saw was the Southern Ring Nebula. What's going on there?
1: That is essentially the blast debris of a star that exploded at the end of its life. So it was probably something like a red giant, which is sort of what is going to happen to our sun billions of years in the future. And when it runs out of fuel, it collapses and explodes. And a lot of the material is thrown out into space. And what we're seeing is that debris as it's still flying away from that collapsed star.
0: It really does look like a frame from a you know a video of an explosion. It's like at a bright center. So
1: that's just what it is, yeah. And it's still being sort of illuminated by the star and glowing. So there's still a lot, tons happening there in this sort of structure. And it's also how material that is made in the star, so heavier elements like oxygen and carbon and all of the stuff we are made of, is dispersed and later it'll form the stuff that makes new stars and new planets. So that's how all of the things that uh, make up planets that we live on originally came to be from stars exploding and spreading their material around.
0: All right, Dan. Well, let's end with that. It was amazing. I'm so excited. I'm sure I'm going to have you back again just to to keep our eye on Webb. Thanks so much.
1: Okay. It's a pleasure.
0: Daniel Clary is a staff writer for science. You can find the images we talked about and more to come at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with Jing Fen about untangling the itch-scratch cycle. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Jing Fen and colleagues wrote this week in Science Translational Medicine about a miswiring of the itch system that may contribute to chronic itch. Hi, Jing. Hi, hey, Sarah. Let me just tell you, prepping for this interview was tough. Consider this kind of like an itchy trigger warning. Yeah, yeah. The study is about itching, and for some reason, even reading it made me itchy. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> so, Maybe our listeners will feel that itch and this will make it a more vital problem for them to solve as well. So I'm guessing you probably don't feel itchy reading and thinking about itching all the time.
2: Sometimes it happens.
0: But that's not what this work is about. It's not about phantom itch, just thinking about itch. This is actually about something that goes wrong with the way we sense and respond to itching. So Let's start with just how does itching work? What do we know about what happens in the body when we feel that something is itchy?
2: Generally speaking, itch is defined as a sensation which evokes a desire to scratch. When you bite it by a mosquito, you will scratch the area to relieve the itch sensations. But this is defined as acute itch. There is another type of itch, chronic itch. That itch sensation may last for more than six weeks. Oh boy. Yeah, chronic age is often resistant to treatment and frequently causes depression, anxiety, difficult sleeping, which is substantially affecting the quality of life. The research of chronic age is underappreciated. That's why we are so interested in this field. The patients has very limited management strategies. I think the only thing they can do is just scratch,
0: But that's not great because what your study is about is the fact that if you itch and you have something going on with you, you might end up, when you go to scratch, you might actually cause your body to send more itch sensation out and then you're scratching more. And it's a cycle. It's chronic itch-scratch cycle.
2: Yes. In chronic itch patients, when they scratch, at that moment, it may make you feel better. But as you rub or scratch the area, it will get itchier. And the more it itches, the more you scratch. And breaking this itch-scratch circle could be very difficult.
0: Yeah. Let's get some of the basics of itch understood first before we move into the specifics of the study. I was surprised that itch involves immune cells, nerve cells, skin cells, all these different types of cells can be involved in this itch-signaling pathway. It's not straightforward.
2: That's complicated because... We think that the immune systems and the nervous system are all involved in this scratch circle. For example, a mosquito may release some toxic chemicals, and these chemicals could activate the skin cells or activate the immune cells or directly activate the sensory neurons. So for example, the skin cells is activated, they may release neuropeptide or cytokines from the immune cells. Skin cells may crosstalk to the sensory nerve systems or the immune cells may release some cytokines to activate the sensory neurons. Then the sensory neurons is activated, the signal goes directly to the brain. The brain feels itch, then it triggers the reflex to scratch. That's how it happens.
0: So in this work, you are looking at how to understand how scratching can make you itchy and how this kind of gets turned around, miswired in the skin so at the very superficial level of the nervous system what did you find was different about people or in this case mice that were experiencing itch scratch cycles
2: touch is quite different from the itch sensation right there is a unique cell types called Merkel cells and these Merkel cells express a mechanosensitive ion channel called piezo2
0: we're talking about in the skin there are these special cell types called Merkel cells and they have a channel on their surface that responds to mechanical pressure. And so they were thought to be associated with the sensation of touch. I feel touch because something's pushing on me and a Merkle cell is being deformed and this channel is opening and it's then signaling everybody else in the body saying touch is happening.
2: Yes. So our question is how this touch sensation is converted to each sensation under the pathology conditions.
0: So just to kind of really flag this, touch is the same thing as scratching. Just to be very clear, yes, you feel scratching is the feeling of being touched. So that's why the Merkel cells and these piezo 2 channels are involved.
2: Yes. Basically, under the physiological conditions, when we apply a force to your skin, this piezo 2 channel opens and the Merkel cell activated and this A-beta fibers is firing. So you feel the touch sensations. But what happened during the pathology conditions? To answer these questions, we first employed the AW-induced dry skin models, which mimics the aging skin in the human elderly. So under this condition, we first knock out the cells or moccasile-expressing cell PS2 channels. Then, strikingly, we found that if we knock out these cells or these pl 2 channels, the scratching behavior was significantly reduced in the mice when compared to the little mice controls.
0: You need the Merkel cells and the piezo channels to get that scratch cycle going. Getting rid of those reduces all the scratching in these dry skin model mice.
2: Yes. So on the other hand, we use the chemogenetic strategies which could specifically activate the Merkel cells. So when we activated these Merkel cells with the chemogenetic strategies, the mice will scratch more. So with the loss of function studies and the gain function studies, we showed that cells and PL2 channels critically involved in the generation of this scratching behavior. The question is how this touch sensation was converted to the itch signals under the pathological conditions. So to answer these questions, we combined the electrophysiological recordings, 3D reconstructions and transmission electron microscope and with these technologies, we showed that anatomically, this small diameter C-fibers is growing towards the cells in the dry skin models. And if we activate the cells, we see the C-fiber firings.
0: So you actually like physically looked at where the cells and the fibers were, and then you also were able to record from these nerves to see who was firing when things were happening. And instead of these like... A-beta larger diameter fibers that the Merkle cells normally connect to for touch, they're talking to these thin C fibers that normally transmit the itch sensation. So Merkle cells are talking to somebody else that you wouldn't expect.
2: Yes, that's correct. We showed that under the pathological conditions, this touch receptor miswires the issue receptor. And this communication between this touch receptor and the issue receptor contributed to the vicious itch and the scratch circle.
0: Do we know why the Merkel cells started talking to the C-fibers?
2: That's what we've seen from the 3D reconstruction and the microscopy. reissue receptors normally stays away from the Merkel cells under the physiology conditions.
0: So the proximity is the cause. Yes. So why are they getting closer? Just because the skin is dry?
2: That's a great question because we didn't get any answers so far. That's the next question we are pursuing.
0: So this study was in mice, in a mouse model of dry skin. Are a lot of these same players that we've talked about, these different nerve fibers and the Merkel cells, all existent in humans, and is this likely to be something we could see in people?
2: We didn't have any human data, but from other stories they said the Merkel cells may crosstalk with C fibers.
0: So you might start to find the same thing in people. With this new understanding of the physical underpinnings, like what is happening in the skin in the itch-scratch cycle, could this help us explore new treatments for people who are really you know, hard up now? They just don't really have a lot of options.
2: Yes, I think so. For the first time, we identified mercosil as a main center for these touch-itch conversions. And I think these mercosil PL2 signaling are reachable because they are superficially expressed. If you apply some lotions, these drugs could be easily getting into the mucocell and modulate the mucocell PL2 signaling. I think this could be a therapeutic target to break the issue's grass circle in the future. Thanks, Jing. Thank you, sir.
0: Jing Fen is the principal investigator at the Center for Neurological and Psychiatric Research and Drug Discovery at the Shanghai Institute of Materia Medica at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. You can find a link to the paper in Science Translational Medicine at science.org slash podcast. Up next, we have a custom segment sponsored by Michelson Philanthropies. Custom publishing director Sean Sanders chats with researcher Paul Bastard about his COVID-19 research and about winning the Michelson Philanthropies and Science Prize for Immunology.
2: Hello
3: to our listeners, and welcome to this custom-sponsored interview from the Science AAA's Custom Publishing Office, brought to you by Michelson Philanthropies. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. Today, I'm delighted to be talking with Dr. Paul Bastard, grand prize winner of the 2022 Michelson Philanthropies and Science Prize for Immunology. We'll be talking about his work, his career, and the prize. Paul is a chief resident in the Department of Pediatrics at the Necker Hospital for Sick Children in Paris, France, while also doing research at the Imagine Institute in Paris and the Rockefeller University in New York. His research focuses on the genetic and immunological determinants of severe viral diseases, including the causes and consequences of autoantibodies against type 1 interferons. Paul, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Hi,
4: Sean. It's really great to be here and thanks so much for the invitation.
3: So, Paul, let's start off with the work that won you the grand prize award. Could you briefly
4: explain to our audience what it's all about? Yes, absolutely. But before I start, I'd really like to thank Moccasin Philanthropies and Science for awarding me this prize. It's really been a huge honor. So what we tried to do is to really understand why people die of COVID and sort of more generally why people suffer from severe infection. And to do that, we created a large international consortium to recruit as many individuals as possible, either with very severe infection who are in the ICU or asymptomatic infection. And then we sequenced all their exomes, meaning all their genes, and tried to look for mutations that would impede the antiviral response, and we found that surprisingly, three to 5% of these individuals who were in the ICU had a mutation explaining why they suffered from severe COVID. And to try to go further and look for other causes, we also looked for something that is sort of similar in the mechanism, meaning impeding the antiviral pathway, but completely different in how it happens. We looked for autoantibodies that could block the antiviral response itself. And what we did was to screen several large cohorts and found that between 15 to up to 25% of individuals who are in the ICU because of COVID have these autoantibodies explaining why they suffered from severe COVID. And this is really important because these can be looked for easily and perhaps even treated in the individuals in which we find them. Now, these these
3: autoantibodies that you talked about, is this something that is common in the general population or is it only specific to people with certain diseases?
4: Well, this is really a fascinating question because although we found these autoantibodies in about 15 to 20% of patients who are in the ICU, they're actually really rare in the general population. Before 65 years old, it's extremely rare, 0.2, 0.3% of healthy individuals, but then it sort of rises with age almost exponentially, reaching more than 4% after 70 years old. How do
3: you hope that this work will have an impact on the treatment of COVID-19 and other similar types of pandemics in the future?
4: Oh, I mean, yes, absolutely. This is the goal. I mean, at least one of the goals to try to implement our results in the clinic and hopefully lead to treatments that could prevent severe disease for COVID and other viral diseases. Now, specifically for the autoantibodies, I think they're really easy to detect. They can be done in any immunology lab and you can have the uh, the results in a few hours. And this can lead to very specific treatments to prevent severe disease before the virus starts replicating. Now, a critical part of science is
3: communicating one's work. So was it challenging to summarize all of these findings into your prize application?
4: Absolutely. And this was actually, I guess, a bigger challenge than expected. I mean, trying to summarize several years of work into a very short one-page summary that would be readable to a very broad audience is definitely a big challenge. And uh, I'm very happy that the essay was selected. The Michelson Philanthropies and Science
3: Prize for Immunology is specifically aimed at early career researchers. Now, accepting that you might be a little bit biased, what are your thoughts on the importance of supporting scientists who are just starting out in their careers?
4: Oh yeah, (laughs) I mean, how can I not be biased with with this question? Absolutely. I think it's really by supporting young scientists at the beginning of their career, that probably have a lot of new ideas and that could discover and could become the next generation. I guess this is really when you want to give the best opportunities to sort of build the future of science. And so I'm, I'm hugely grateful for this support at this stage of my career.
3: The COVID-19 pandemic has brought a lot of attention to the field of immunology. How do you feel about this? And do you think it's still a good choice for a research career or is it getting somewhat overcrowded?
4: I guess I feel it's really phenomenal how despite this terrible pandemic, researchers around the world were able to gather together and to create lots of new collaborations, especially in immunology. And the pandemic has really made people realize how important immunology was. And it could really affect all of our lives. And for me, immunology is fascinating, not only because of its complexity, but also about how it can really affect all of us at many stages of our lives and affect basically every organ. And there's also this huge interaction between our immune system and everything else from the outside, all the pathogens, but also the non-pathogens that is just fascinating. And being at the crossroads of so many specialties and fields that are so interesting, I think I could only encourage people to come to immunology. I want to talk a little bit about the award itself.
3: How did you feel when you found out that you'd won the grand prize? Oh boy, it was
4: something I I really didn't expect it at first. I couldn't believe the email when I read it. I was happy about having this recognition of all the work that we had done for the last two years and a half. And also happy that it gave a recognition to all of the collaborators and the people in our lab, because this has been the work of a huge team. And I was, I was really proud and honored to receive this prize. Have you seen any impact after the prize
3: recipients were announced? Were you mobbed at the hospital for your autograph? Absolutely,
4: (laughs) so from the scientific community I've received lots of emails and very nice people who've congratulated us and I hope this prize is going to sort of bring this research that is basic research all the way back to the physicians and really as soon as possible to the patients. And it's really been bringing a lot of light on on what we've been doing and on our work on COVID and how we try to understand why. And this is really huge recognition for me and for all the team involved. Do you have any
3: advice for other early career researchers to give them the best chance of success in their careers and maybe in an application to the prize next year? Oh boy, that's really
4: a tricky question. I guess what I would say is perhaps when you have an idea, try to pursue it. I mean, most of our ideas are not gonna be the right ones but some of them might. And so, you know, if you believe in it, just go for it. And then for writing the, the essay, I think it's just make it as simple as possible, sort of readable for your family. If they can read it, I guess everyone can read it and enjoy it. That's really important, I think. And finally, I I wanted to ask about your future work. What are your plans for
3: the next few years after this prize and after this this great success in your publication in science?
4: Well, I guess I'd love to continue. I mean, being able to do both clinical practice in the hospital and basic research in the lab is really phenomenal. And now specifically, I'd really love to continue working on these autoantibodies that explain severe infections. I mean, we've understood partially how they can cause severe viral diseases, but now I guess we want to understand why they're here, why do they arrive in certain individuals, and can they have any beneficial role? And I guess if we continue to understand the cause of severe infectious disease, we can also hope to understand perhaps the cause of severe autoimmune diseases that are also very frequent so yeah, this would be really a fascinating goal that I, I hope I'll be able to pursue.
3: Well, Paul, it's, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time and uh, best of luck with your research.
4: Thanks so much for the interview, Sean. It's been a real pleasure. Merci beaucoup, as we say in French, and I hope to discuss again
3: soon. Our thanks to Michaelson Philanthropies for its support for the Michaelson Philanthropies and Science Prize for Immunology and for making this conversation possible. We hope you've enjoyed it. Until next time.
0: And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website, that's science.org slash podcast, or you can search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy and Megan Cantwell. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting Aas.org/join. That's aaas.org/join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by science careers.